talked last episode about an article that I found that lists 10 rules parents can do to encourage kids to eat right and maintain a healthy weight. And I only talked about five of the rules and wanted to finish up with the other five today. And the whole reason behind talking about sugar and food stemmed from my daughter's first birthday, in which it almost seemed like it was my societal obligation to introduce my baby to a giant cake and then share the pictures to the world of the gluttonous massacre that inevitably happens. And for the record, my baby did get a cupcake, and she did get to try some ice cream. We gave her her own cupcake and a few bites of ice cream. We tried to not let her binge on too much of anything. It is my responsibility, along with my wife, to teach our daughter how to have a healthy relationship with sugar and food in general, and I was conflicted about having her first experience with cake be an uncontrolled experience where she got to eat it until she was sick. I just didn't find this to be a cute or good idea in any way. That said, I also don't think it's healthy to label foods as bad and be 100% restrictive. All of these things were going through my mind as my daughter's first birthday approached, and I've continued to research tips, tricks, and best practices as it pertains to teaching my baby how to have a healthy relationship with food. Before I dive into the next five rules I saw in this article, I wanted to recap something from the last episode. I realized as I analyzed these rules that I am a bad example when it comes to snacking. I have a tendency to hold my baby while I go to the cupboard and forage for some snacks. And I realize that to her little brain, she is being taught that it is okay to stand at the cupboard without a plan, without cooking, without prepping, and without any work at all, and snack on whatever is available while standing there. I absolutely don't want to teach my daughter that this is an acceptable common thing to do because how much of the snacking food available while standing at the cupboard is actually healthy? Most, not all, but most snack foods are processed foods that aren't overly good for me. Not only that, I wasn't doing her any favors by teaching her that food was just supposed to be readily available without needing to cook or prepare. I was also teaching her that it's not acceptable to feel hungry at all. It's almost like feeling a little bit of hunger before your next meal is a bad thing. Well, why is it a bad thing? Why would it be bad for my body to start feeling hungry before my next meal? I don't think it's a healthy practice to teach my baby that the moment she feels hungry, she should always eat. I want to teach her to be mindful about her food. This also doesn't mean that snacking is a bad thing. But unstructured and mindless snacking does not lead to good practices and health outcomes later. Mindful snacking is perfectly fine. Mindful eating is not impulsive eating. I hadn't really ever practiced mindful snacking before. I'm pretty good at it when it comes to my meals. But I've never really paid much attention when I'm snacking and how mindlessly I will sit there and just eat food over and over out of habit. And when I realized that I was doing this in front of her, I was pinged with guilt. And so I made it a goal to not snack in front of my baby. And I'd recommend this to any parent, actually. Try not to mindlessly snack in front of your baby or your child. It was an eye-opening goal for me, and it was a gratifying goal. I caught myself about to snack in front of her a few times, and I immediately changed course. We went instead and read some books or played with her toys. The time that I would have spent snacking was better spent doing something that was directed at her. And not only that, it prevented me from snacking on food I didn't need to. I mean, it was a win-win situation for both of us. So now I'd like to jump into the rest of the rules from this article. Again, the 10 rules are, one, parents control the supply lines. 
Two, from the foods you offer, kids get to choose what they will eat or whether to eat at all. Three, quit the clean plate club. Four, start them young. Five, rewrite the kids' menu. Six, drink calories count. Seven, put sweets in their place. Eight, food is not love. Nine, kids do as you do. And ten, limit TV and computer time. I'm going to focus on two, three, five, seven, and ten. So let's just jump right in. Rule two, from the foods you offer, kids get to choose what they will eat or whether to eat at all. This rule is really interesting to me. The article says, kids need to have some say in the matter. Schedule regular meal and snack times. From the selections you offer, let them choose what to eat and how much of it they want. This may seem like too much freedom, but if we follow step one, controlling the supply lines and what is available, your kid will be choosing only from the foods you buy and serve. I love this rule, to be honest. There is a theory called intuitive eating, and the idea behind it is that we are all born with an innate ability to know what and how much our bodies need. Newborns can even tell us if they're hungry or full. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, parents should do responsive feeding. The idea is essentially we provide and the child decides. I must admit this was counterintuitive to me because I had this mindset that we as parents needed to be 100% in control of everything that a baby eats. And this is still true according to rule number one in that we control what food is provided. But babies need the ability to choose. Taking this a step further, Dr. Guidos from the Cleveland Clinic, uh, which I referenced in the last couple of episodes, said that children have an innate ability to adjust their diet to their energy intake. They can even self-regulate when they need protein, fat, and carbohydrates. This sounded crazy to me at first, but after thinking about it, not so much. We are trying to use this idea as a guide for when we feed our baby. Now, we try to provide a healthy balance of fruits and veggies, proteins, carbs at each meal, or at least throughout the day. There are some days when she isn't much interested in anything but the fruit, and there are other days where she will eat primarily little pieces of chicken and cheese and barely have any fruit. If I didn't have an understanding that my baby was at least somewhat able to do this, it might have worried me a little bit. I might have always wondered if I was doing wrong by my baby. The idea here is to make sure that the supply lines are good. My wife and I try to make sure and buy and prepare healthy foods that are staples in fats, proteins, and carbohydrates, and we offer her a variety when she eats. We try to pay close attention to her as she eats to see if she's getting full or still hungry. And it helps that she's now able to communicate with sign language if she is still hungry or uh, if she's full and she's all done. As long as I know that I'm providing a supply of healthy food, I feel pretty good about what my baby is eating, even if she doesn't even touch something that's on her plate during a meal. Rule number three, quit the clean plate club. I love this rule. I'm sure you've all heard the classic cliche when you throw your food away or you leave food on your plate and somebody looks at you and says, you aren't going to finish that? You know, there are starving children in Africa that would love to have that food. I'm sure we've all heard some iteration of this at some point. I was really impressed by a response I heard one time. This person shot back, yep, and while I feel bad for them, finishing this plate of food won't help them one bit. This was a perfect response. Using an example of starving children to convince somebody to overeat seems a bit insidious too. Not only that, how is teaching somebody to have an unhealthy relationship with the food in front of them going to help anybody else anywhere? As it turns out, convincing somebody to overeat doesn't do anybody any favors. 
Also, I think it would be wise for us to change our language around eating too. Why is it that we eat until we're full? I think that once we get to the point that we're full, we probably already went a little too far. I lived in Brazil for a couple of years, and I learned that when they've had enough to eat, they don't actually say they're full. They say that they're satisfied. I think this is a much better approach, and is certainly one I'm going to try and teach my baby. Now, I will expect my baby to try everything that is provided for a meal. She doesn't have to like it, but I think she should try it, and obviously be grateful for it. That said, forcing her to finish something that she doesn't want, or more directly, that she doesn't need... Uh, will not do her any favors. In fact, to further make this point using my example of Brazilians saying they're satisfied rather than full, I always thought it was funny when I would finish my plate of food and be completely stuffed. I was just so full. They would immediately begin to dish up more food and put it on my plate because when they see an empty plate, they assumed that I was still hungry. And the way to signal to them that I had eaten enough was to not finish everything on my plate. Talk about learning the lesson the hard way. There were times after a meal where I had to just lay down. I was just too full. And looking back, it's comical to me, but I think it illustrates the point pretty clearly. Rule number five, rewrite the kid's menu. The article says, Who says kids only want to eat hot dogs, pizza, burgers, and macaroni and cheese? When eating out, let your kids try new foods, and they might surprise you with their willingness to experiment. You can start by letting them try a little of whatever you ordered, or by ordering an appetizer for them to try. I could not agree more with this rule. It takes a lot of tries for a child or baby to develop a taste for a new food, so I think the key here is variety. Introducing a variety of food to our children is important, even when in utero. There is growing evidence that variety in mother's diet can help develop taste preferences for her babies. Dr. Julie Manella from the Chemical Census Center tested this idea where they gave expecting mothers certain food prior to taking samples of the amniotic fluid. They then had a panel of people to smell the samples, and sure enough, it wasn't difficult at all. They specifically used garlic in this study, but Dr. Manella said that there is not a single flavor they have found that does not show up in utero. Dr. Manella published another study that focused on whether babies carried the preferences developed in the womb after they were a few months old and eating solid food. They gave pregnant women carrot juice every day during their pregnancy, and another group of women didn't have any carrots at all. After these children were born and a few months old, they presented these babies with cereal made with either water or carrot juice, and sure enough, the babies whose moms had carrot juice every day were more likely to eat the carrot-flavored cereal. The ramifications seem quite profound here. Simply put, the more mom eats vegetables, the more likely a baby is to develop a preference for, or at least more of a tolerance for, those vegetables. In any event, there really is no downside to trying. If it works, the baby will have developed a taste for the healthy foods that mom ate while pregnant. And if it doesn't work, and baby does not like vegetables, well, mom is probably going to be healthier for trying. I know a lot of people that restrict giving food to babies due to fear of allergies. As it turns out, the Canadian Pediatric Society did a review of multiple studies on the subject and concluded that there is no evidence that delaying the introduction of any specific food beyond six months of age helps prevent allergies. In fact, another study conducted by the Immune Tolerance Network and sponsored by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, known as the LEAP study, found that the introduction of peanuts at 4 to 11 months of age significantly reduced 
the risk of developing peanut allergy in high-risk infants. In fact, peanut consumption begun in infancy and continued until five years of age led to an 81% reduction in the development of peanut allergy in high-risk infants. In this case, high-risk means that they already had severe eczema, egg allergy, or both. It was this LEAP study that actually led the American Academy of Pediatrics to change their guidelines on the introduction of allergenic foods just this last year. They now recommend much earlier introduction to these foods. Again, I'm not about to tell parents how to feed their kids. My wife and I don't have any allergies between the two of us, and we certainly didn't want to restrict food to our baby, especially out of fear. So we introduced some of the high-risk foods at about four to five months. Again, I simply think variation is key here. No reason to let kids' menus dictate what we should or should not feed our kids. Rule number seven, put sweets in their place. The article says, Occasional sweets are fine, but don't turn dessert into the main reason for eating dinner. When dessert is the prize for eating dinner, kids naturally place more value on the cupcake than the broccoli. Try to stay neutral about foods. I honestly don't think this article does enough to address this. I completely agree. Sugar should not be used as a bribe to get kids to eat healthy food first, especially since sweets are generally so calorie-dense. One ounce of cake has 700% more calories than an ounce of broccoli. If a treat is a reward to eat broccoli, and they're eaten in roughly the same amounts, then sugar is being consumed at an astronomical rate compared to vegetables. I can certainly agree that not using candy as a reward for eating is a best practice. And I hate the fact that I do it as an adult. I consider it an unhealthy relationship with sugar in my own life. So I'm not going to teach my daughter to treat sugar this way. I do like the advice about staying neutral about food. For example, I know people that have no problem being in the presence of sugar and ice cream because these foods don't really excite them. They like them quite a bit, but their happiness or mood does not rely on their eating the food. I have some friends whose three-year-old is relatively disinterested in sugary foods because his parents taught him so. It's not that they don't have the food available, they certainly do, but they don't surround dessert with all sorts of excitement and emotion. Rule number 10. Limit TV and computer time. As it turns out, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, screen media exposure is one of the best documented causes of obesity in children and likewise, obesity is one of the best documented outcomes of screen media exposure. There are three main ways this happens. First, watching TV is not physical activity. Second, TV time often includes snacking time. And third, screen time can affect normal sleeping patterns. That said, the reduction in physical activity is a weak link in these studies. It's really hard to suggest that screen time would have otherwise been spent at the park or running or exercising rather than doing some other sedentary activity. Children who consume more screen time also consume less fruits and vegetables. They consume more junk food and overall consume higher levels of calories. Not only that, screen time leads to snacking even when not hungry. Couple this tendency with all of the food advertising that happens in children's programming, and it's almost like we're fighting a multi-front battle here. In fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics also found that food commercials have been shown to increase automatic eating for any food, not even what is being advertised. The very presence of food commercials just makes us want to eat. It doesn't matter what's in front of us, we just want to eat it. This is a tough one because it's so easy to sit a child down in front of a screen. 
When my daughter was just a few weeks old, she was immediately drawn to screens. It's like she knew they were there even when they weren't turned on. And when my wife was feeding her in the early days when the feeding sessions tended to last a lot longer, if my wife pulled her phone out, even for a second, not even in my daughter's line of sight, she would stop eating and look for the phone. As we all well know, screen time is super addictive. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that babies and toddlers up to 18 months get no screen time except for video chats with family members. Then, between 18 and 24 months, limited screen time under supervision. Preschoolers are recommended no more than an hour a day with a parent or caregiver who can explain and help interpret what they're seeing. While screen time has other detriments we could discuss, the mindless snacking correlation with screen time is enough for me to take note. It only makes sense that limiting screen time means that that time needs filled with something else. Simply turning off a screen presents an opportunity to do something active. Certainly not my intention to vilify screens. I love the screens in my life, but I think that there is a responsible way to deal with them and raise our children with them. The third way screen time causes obesity is that it disrupts sleep. Simply put, more screen time means more adverse sleeping patterns. Usually by encouraging later sleep time and overall less sleep, the American Academy of Pediatrics says sleep deprivation causes changes in the appetite-regulating hormones ghrelin and leptin to increase hunger and decrease satiety. Short sleep duration can affect children's choices to consume more calories and fewer nutritionally dense foods, and shorter sleep duration may lead to an increased snacking and eating outside of normal mealtimes, including during the night. Also, the blue light from screens suppresses melatonin more than any other type of light. Sleep researchers from Harvard said, At night, light throws the body's biological clock, the circadian rhythm, out of whack. Sleep suffers. Worse, research shows that it may contribute to the causation of cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and obesity. Essentially, a circadian cycle is generally 24 hours, and without artificial light, we align pretty nicely with the sun rising and setting. We are mostly sensitive to blue light, which has a tendency to boost attention reaction times in our mood, which are really great during the day, but supremely disruptive at night. The Harvard researchers continued to suggest that while we still don't have proof and are still in very preliminary stages of researching this, that lower melatonin levels might explain the association with cancer. Blue light can really mess with our sleep, and when we aren't sleeping well, we eat more food, reduce decision-making capability to choose healthier food, and we mess with our chemical and hormonal balances that help regulate our appetite. Sounds like a good reason to reduce my own screen time, and most certainly keep my daughter's screen time at an absolute minimum. Alright, I've made it through all 10 rules. All in all, I think they were somewhat helpful. In the very least, as I read through them, I found specific examples of a few things I need to do to improve. I think that's the goal. Not only did I find something that I needed to improve for my daughter, I found something that I can certainly do that will make my own life better too. My wife, my daughter, and I are in this together after all, and if I become a better man, a better version of myself, because I want to make sure I prepare my daughter for this world, well then I think that's a pretty big win for everybody involved. 